Welcome to another episode of 115 Miles. This is the first ever episode recorded in person in a recording studio. Hass, how have you found this today? <laughs> Hass is having an absolute meltdown. Today, your intro is going to come from me. We talked about the fuel crisis. How did you find that, Hass? Great conversation. It's a great conversation. We talked about Sabina Nessa uh, and how that was reported on very differently um, to the Sarah Everard conversation. And then we talked about how my 15-year-old daughter didn't even know what a youth center was, what that means, and the implications to our society. Hass has recovered from his meltdown. Have you enjoyed this episode, Hass? It's a great episode, Josh. Um, really important for us to have the conversations that we did. <laughs> 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 yes. And I think if you do enjoy this episode, as always, you should come and find us at 115 miles pod on Instagram. Join the community. Enjoy this episode. Hass keeps it together in the episode. I promise. This is 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kaya. Growing up 115 miles apart, our lives couldn't have been more different, but we find ourselves today with many similarities and outlooks upon life. Join us on our podcast as we take a topical dive into life, work, culture, and everything in between. Hassan. Josh. How are you, my man? Mate, this is brilliant. This is... Tell, tell me what's brilliant. Tell the listeners what's brilliant, Hass. What is brilliant is that Josh and I are recording 115 miles together, live, in real life, in the same room, for the first time ever. It, for the first time ever. Episode, I don't know how many we've done. How many have we done? You, you're better than 32. that. 32. That's a guess. I'm sure you said that last week. <laughs> I think it is 32. So it feels really weird to be in a studio, actually. And have you, this is not, this is something in general, not just now, but holding eye contact with you feels a little bit weird. We've never done this before. In fact, I think we've only met each other in person about less than 10 times. Less than 10 times. I reckon this is probably eight times or something, right? It is not double figures. It's not double figures, is it? No. So, um, which people might, find hard to believe because we're so connected well we, we're like probably the like closest of friends that we could be literally high level banter bit of bromance going on here rather than slating each other yeah anyway has you look a mess so uh <laughs> let's start let's start with that what do you mean i look a mess so look can you just can we just for a second pay homage to my notepad it's very good i don't use pen and paper anymore modern man so how have you been anyway? Tell me how you've been for the last two weeks. Any any news in your life that's been going on? Uh, I'm a bit bored of talking about the puppy. So I'll just, I know everyone likes the puppy updates, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the puppy's doing all right. Um, busy, 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 busy. Work-wise, we've got a really hectic uh, finish to the year. Yeah. This is weird looking at you, so I'm it's, just going to ignore it. Yeah, just honest. don't look at um, me. Look over there. Especially with that big shiner you've got but we can talk about your your, your, your black eye in a minute because you just tried to sit on 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 the right side of yeah, the table so, right. so he wouldn't get seen um but uh yeah no busy with work and uh we've got some really interesting things going on there's obviously a secret project that you've helped us with that's starting to get a bit of momentum i was just about to mention that i didn't know it was a secret oh right yeah well we have a secret project uh, well the name of it is the secret okay. anyway that's that's going on so we're hoping to launch that later on in the year and then we've got uh yeah the digital side of the business is, is really good so yeah feeling good bit tired good how about you i'm all right mate i'm back to my full back to myself fully now after uh the bad concussion that i experienced i will talk about it now that you've brought it up yeah uh, I took a bad bang on the head playing football, clashed with my own teammate, uh, was fine for an hour, and then uh, took a funny turn. A funny turn in, I lost my speech, lost use of the right side of my body for about five hours. So I was in hospital with head scans and scans and all that kind of stuff, and it turned out it was like just bad concussion. But it did, you know, the the... Um, feelings of it and the, what the impact it had on me did last a good week. 
but I'm sort of back now. I feel completely normal apart from the shine on my eye. But I had quite a lot of like meetings and uh, a few talks in the week only on Zoom. And it's it's not as strong now, but it used to. I used to have this fear that I looked like a druggie, right? Uh, and so I used to always think, even when I first got sober, I used to think people were always looking at me thinking that he looks like a druggie. Uh, I can say that word, by the way. I feel like I can anyway. Why is it? Is it? Is it well, it's probably not a very nice term to use of something else, somebody else, is it? Because you're, sort of, you're, you're sort of encapsulating a sort of person by the way they look. Yeah, it's like calling somebody a drunk, isn't it? It's not very nice. Yeah. Anyway, I always felt like I looked like that. I think we may have talked about it on here before. I've certainly probably talked about it with you. When I first started going to nice places to eat with Leah, my wife, I, I really struggled. I thought, felt like everyone could see that I didn't deserve to be there. Anyway, so it brought back quite a bit of that this You often week. didn't deserve to be there. <laughs> <laughs> certainly not with Leah. Uh, uh, definitely punching. She basically got you into those establishments. She, yeah, she, it's not, it's, that's not too far from the truth, actually. But she would almost have to like coach me through because of what I felt. And then so that sort of came back quite a bit uh, this week. I was like really worried about it, paranoid about it. And then I found myself at the beginning of calls or talks like over explaining what happened and then thinking they definitely think I'm over explaining this. So they definitely still think that I've been in a fight. Because it is true when, when people see a black eye, they automatically assume you've been in a fight, don't they? Like that's what people think. Who yeah. gave you that shiner, that, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So let, let me ask you something, actually. In the line of work that we do, particularly in the line of work that you do and your story, your transition being such an important part of kind of your healing and your work today, did that play into your mind that you thought people would be judging you? Not necessarily, oh, just been a fight, but do you think they'd, they'd be judging you and making up stories about you in their head that therefore you felt compelled to have to explain just in case. Yeah. It's like insurance. But not necessarily just in case. People do make those judgments, right? But so what? Like, I guess if it's in their head, unless they vocalise it, what do you care? Well, because I, de I, I care deeply about what people think about me. I have to work hard to not let it run me. Yeah. And I think that's part of the, the work that I do is to not, you know, uh, to not let that get to me. That's shame, right? The The kind of... I guess if you talk about like the inner critic, my critical, my critic, inner critic will always be telling me stories about what people think about me. Um, so it's, I think it's easy to say, what does it matter? But it, it particularly when I'm turning up at these places, albeit via Zoom, to deliver it, like I'm literally being paid to deliver a talk. I, you know, it kind of does matter what they think about me to yeah, a degree, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> I, th I think I think it it does, um, but also I think the work that you're doing is 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 showing people like to show up authentically and um, and even if you were able to articulate that actually this is why I'm telling you like yeah. it shouldn't matter but this is why I'm telling you yeah, yeah. it's an important part because otherwise. We just, we start to get into that thing. Like you and I even talked about whether you should send an email to a big client before it happens. And then we said, well, no, that's just silly, right? That's just yeah, yeah. more of a bigger thing. Um, but just to say, next time your teammate thinks you're playing badly and wants you off, he just <laughs> needs to ask your manager to sub you. He doesn't need to take you out. Have a word. Listen, mate, I won the ball. I won the ball. Um, the floor won. What I would say <laughs> the game. What, yeah, I what I would say is uh I will make up. I was getting Leah to put makeup on it in the week to dub it that I mean it was like let's have it right. At the beginning of the week it was pretty shocking. Yeah. At the beginning of like it was pretty shocking. Yeah. So then I had makeup on it and then I was explaining to people that I had makeup on it. I did a Instagram live with a uh a, a mental health app called My Possible Self and um I had makeup on it. I had makeup on it for this live. And then at the beginning, um, I was like, she's like, it started with a check-in. So she said, checking in, how are you? And I said, well, as you can probably tell, I've got a black eye. And she went, oh, no, I didn't notice. I just thought you had a bit of makeup on. <laughs> I was like, 
Oh, no, I have got makeup on. I have got makeup on as well. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, that was my week. Anyway, it's... it's... Can I just say, the, this is obviously a professional studio. Um, very lucky. Uh, it's backlit with a bit of purple uh, on the left side of you. And, uh, oh, it's your right side, actually. And it just accentuates that shinery more. <laughs> Shame the camera's not going to see it. Do you know where I thought you was going? Uh, we're in a professional setting and it's great. And you look like a druggie. <laughs> <laughs> Your makeup looks lovely. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, that's how I am. I'm good. I'm out of football for a few weeks. Part of the management team for the team that I'm playing for for the next oh dear. two weeks left. So yeah, we had a great result the weekend. Uh, anyway, coming on to the actual podcast. Hass, how did you get here today? How did you get to... The big smoke today. I took the train, Josh. Is that because you got no fuel or not? It, I wouldn't normally take the train in for work uh, to London. I just take the train. All right, I, thanks I like for the, the fucking boring answer. Sorry, mate. <laughs> <You> Sorry. <laughs> but hang on. See where I'm on, going with this. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, all right, all right. Come on. I'm due to go to my. <laughs> 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 I'm due to go to my mum's on the weekend, and I was going to drive. Got the kids with me, but we can take the train because I got no fuel. Do they go on the train much, the kids? Uh, from time to time. Oh, they do. Yeah. Just, we took my kids on the train to Wembley the other week and uh, they loved it. It's a good they don't get to do it very often. Yeah, We're country folks here. I'm not a townie. Um, what do you think about this whole fuel crisis? I don't want to spend too much time here, actually, on the fuel crisis, but I do want to, I feel like we should talk about it a little bit. <laughs> well, um, what do I think about it? Well, uh, is it to do with Brexit? I tried reading about it and it's... A very it's boring. It's complex. Boring. I think uh, I think it is to do with Brexit. Have we ever talked about Brexit on this podcast? Oh, I don't think so, Josh. Well, let's go there. Yeah, no, I think, of course. What did you vote, Has? I voted Remain, well Josh. What did you vote? I voted Remain. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> There's a reason we're friends. Um, no, seriously. I. Uh, what do I think? I mean, it's quite a big question. I do think it's connected to Brexit. Um, I think it's also connected to the impacts of COVID. I think uh, largely it was the combination of the two that started to drive um, people out of the UK because conditions just weren't great for people that weren't holding mm. a UK passport. Um, driving conditions for HGV drivers are really shit in this country compared to... I've read somewhere that um, um, there are like um, designed... Uh, processes for for truck drivers in Europe so they've got they get right of way on certain things they have like proper proper places to stop where they can have three course meals you know like they treat it not like the worst job in the world but actually it's an important job yeah but then on top of all of that is fucking idiot people you know what sort of fucking idiot people has like hoarding and uh I know where you're going with this as well. And the media as well, right? You know, like... <laughs> that's not, <laughs> that's not where I was going. Gave me. That's not where I was, I was going. getting there. But like uh, people who um, who get into that horde mentality, who get into that, you know, I need to look after me, who need to fill up their tanks and then basically go again and fill up their tanks. Like, um, and then it's like the media that's driving all of it. So mm. like, I feel really bad actually, because it isn't, you know, I can't blame at the top of the um, kind of the, the pyramid of this is the media for, well, actually at the top is Boris Johnson and his government, Yeah. then the media, but then it is a, a, a kind of a lack of common sense um, and kind of individualism that you can't really pin on any one group. It's just kind of, you know, the way people are as a result of kind of what's going on in the media and the government that's driving this. But I, I understand it. I understand that once, you know, the, the snowball effect takes, you don't want to be caught left wanting. Have you filled up? No. No. I tried to, because like I, I was thinking I need to get to London. What and does I could trying have... to fuel up look like? You drove around looking for a garage? Yeah. What, and they were all empty? Two of them were empty. And then I, <laughs> and then I uh, went to this, uh, Sainsbury's that has a petrol station on it and you just saw tailback, right? So yeah. I thought, let me just, this was on Sunday morning, quite early. So I thought, let me just jump into the back of this queue. Turned the junction, I was sitting behind a taxi driver and another, ta and but the, the 
the lane on the opposite side was obviously empty. And so this taxi, other taxi driver comes up, parks, um, waiting at the lights, has a little word to him. He said, yeah, only about a five minute wait. That's all I caught. And then the lane to the left of us was empty, which was taking us out of Brighton. And the taxi driver just pulled out in front of me, just pulled out for this guy knows something. They obviously have a little code. So I just pulled out and then started to drive behind him. But he was really bombing it, like properly bombing. I tried to like keep up with him, but he was just, he was gone. So then I just basically lost my space. So you were one of the idiots. What were you filling up for? Because I've got no petrol and I need to. Are you on empty now? Yeah. I don't really get how you can panic buy petrol. I don't get it. You've got to be empty, haven't you? If you've got fuel, you've got fuel. It's not like bog roll where you can put loads of it in the airing cupboard like yeah. last year, right? Yeah. I don't really get it. People like worry about, you know, when the when the indicator comes on. Yeah. And you're like, you've still got probably enough to get to wherever you're going and home yeah. again, usually. Like, yeah, it's yeah, psychological. Yeah. But as soon as that comes on, people start panicking. Yeah. I'm the other way, see. I hate filling up. So that light's on. I, I, I'm always playing... I'm always playing cat and mouse with it. How many more journeys can yeah. I get out of it? You're just like, how many miles? I've driven. Uh, and also, I think cars aren't accurate. They just they just kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just kind of make it up. So I've, I've driven on zero, you know, zero uh, in the tank. And I'm still getting oh, places. Mate, back in the day, I used to drive on, on, on real on bad coke. zero. <laughs> <laughs> used to fly around, didn't I you? did. I did, yeah. I don't drive. I just smoke and fly. <laughs> Do you remember them things like you used to get stuff like that, didn't you? Like a backy tin with don't don't drink and drive, smoke and fly on it. Um, I had a really good point to make about the the get up. So I've seen today or last night, particularly this morning, that the angle that the press are now taking is um, to give key workers to like make garages specifically for key workers. And I don't I can't figure out why you might be able to try and help me here. I, do, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. What makes you feel uncomfortable? I don't like it. I don't like this whole... Because obviously if the media are saying that, right, and it's come, like Sadiq Khan is one of the people that said key workers should... I just don't like it when the government start trying to segregate us and... Because it is a form of segregation, is it not? To like... I don't know. I'm here for the key workers. I just don't... The government should be sorting it out. Not it, not all this this sort of thing where we're doing all this. Like it's like we've got to keep um, going out of our way and living in in deficit because the government can't get stuff right. Because this is because of Brexit, but it's also because Boris Johnson's a massive prick. In it. Oh, how long did it take us? <laughs> That's pretty good. Anyway, anyway. Uh, now, now hang on. Before you rush, I mean, because you've made a point, and then we need to discuss it. All right. All right. Well, like, you're just looking at me blankly. So no, well, you, you didn't stop talking. So now there's a little break while you're having a problem drink. of mine. If yeah. you've not realised over oh, the mate, I have realised. Um, no, I think um, I think like there's the there's the idealism of, yes, the government should sort it out. And then you've got the real challenge of what life is like. And when key workers, depending on who they are, um, have been identified as as the people doing work that keeps this country running, right? So let's say a teacher, one teacher potentially enables 30 parents to do what they need to do during the day, whether it's working or keeping the home or whatever. So their need, if they need to get to petrol to get to where they need to get to, that's why they've been identified as a key worker, a nurse, a doctor. Mm. One of those people cares for uh, a more macro number of people. So uh, until this gets sorted, if they need to get elevated because the system is f screwed up and you almost have to kind of put, it's a bit like putting a plaster on until you can solve, sort a wound out, then then that's what you might need to do because those people need to work to, yeah. to yeah. get going. Yeah, no, I understand. And I they shouldn't be penalised because the government, you know, there's a two-way street. Like, we all need it, but some people, we all, everyone has needs. Some people have Higher needs than others. That's it. Yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. And I like. I but I still can't quite in my mind figure out why. I, why I don't like it because what you're saying makes total sense. The to reason me. you don't like it is because it's diversionary tactics. So when we were talking about COVID, when yeah. we were talking about COVID, yeah. 
we weren't talking about Brexit anymore. And actually, we haven't talked about Brexit really hardly at all until this shortage stuff came yeah. up. So, you know, in talking about key workers, we're not looking or the, the media is pushing us away from looking at how the government's handled this, how the government, how, how uh, kind of the initial leak about a refinery, um, uh, you know, uh, reserves mm. has caused this chaotic. Yeah. And, and, and the way the media report it, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I sort of look at the media as being part of the government, really, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. Um, the way that the media report it, rather than reporting just what absolute shambles it is that it's happening, it's all just reporting about people that are being idiots going to fuel up. But I just sort of think if you're on empty, you're on empty, and yeah. I mean, I did see a video of a woman filling up, like, empty in water. Did you see this? No. She's, like, emptying two litre bottles of water and then... Filling them up with fuel next to a I car. I swear some of these are photoshopped. I, I got, I saw, I saw one where this guy just had his car and then about eight um, petrol cans just filling them up. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. And I, I, I'd be the, the the thing I would be interested to, and it was a kind of a similar conversation that was had around the bog roll last year, was how many of these people that are panic buying because they've run out of fuel have got a lot to say about some of these the the people that are fleeing war in like rubber dinghies and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Don't want them over here. Don't care about them. And what, yet... What's the point you make? I mean, I think you're right, but what's the point you're making? Well, look how we react at just a little bit of fear. And by the way, I know what irrational fear lo looks like. So I do have a s sort of an amount of sympathy or compassion for the people that are doing it, right? I don't actually tend to look at the idiots um, that are doing it. I look more at the government and say, look what you've made happen. Um, but I have to agree with you there, and I, I think if I reflect back on like my, my my you know the way I said it, it is the government and it is the media that's driving this behaviour. And once it's a bit like when you when you get taken by the momentum of a crowd, you got to be really brave and courageous to start doing it differently. Mm. But because there's a sort of it's not just about you. I imagine if people were just simply just you know units of one, it probably wouldn't be as bad. But when you're you know, when you have dependence mm. or it, it, you need it because of your work, which, you know, feeds your family or feeds your, you know, your people, whether it's family or, or whatever dependence you have, you think differently. You know, I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't thinking um, uh, about, oh, I need to just have fuel in the car. I was thinking I need to get there. But then I have to say it didn't take me long to just go, actually, I don't need to. Yeah. Know? I'll yeah, just leave yeah, yeah. the like we don't like we live in Brighton. You can pretty much walk everywhere. Mm. You got everything on your doorstep. I go to London, take the train. It'll be fine. And that's a, you know I that is me being able to see that actually I just need to take myself out of this situation. Yeah. To let it resolve. It will resolve because you know eighteen months ago we thought that was going to be a global shortage of toilet paper. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. there wasn't. And I think when you when you start to look at like what might be perceived as irrational fear around fuel. I sent you a Russell Brand video the other day. Did you watch it? No. Nah, you told me yet. about four times you was going to watch it. Um, you haven't watched it? I haven't watched it. Do you know you can watch YouTube videos on like times two now? Yeah, I just... I watch a lot of my videos on 1.75. Listen, mate, I know you've got time to watch YouTube videos and make reels. I'm just good at self-care. I'm so busy. But what I did watch the video, I'm going to sort of paraphrase some of the things that he said. Now, he was talking about... Um, people who haven't had the vaccine, right? And he was, there was some guy, some dude in America who's very like liberal, left, you know, left-leaning and whatever. And he was saying that um, we should start shaming people who don't get the vaccine, right? So he was taking this guy and he was saying, you can't just say that about people. And then what he did is he took these surveys that were done in America um, of reasons why people didn't have the vaccine, right? And some of the things that were cited were like, something like, uh, I'm going to get the percentages wrong, but there was a like around 20% of people who don't have the vaccine in America would have the vaccine if somebody paid for the childcare for them to go and get the vaccine, right? Uh, some people that didn't have the vaccine um, had had like dodgy pregnancies and were like really concerned about it on that sort of thing. And there was, lo when you looked at loads of the different reasons, some of them were just like, don't trust people, which is, 
one thing, but there was a lot of these different reasons. And then um, uh, there was a high percentage of people from like urban areas, people of color and stuff like that. And when he broke it down and he said, you can't take people's fear and just call it irrational because you have a certain life and you can come at it from your perspective and not see it as being rational, right? And he said, so, so so to simply just label and group everybody together that doesn't want to do something without listening to the complexities of their stories, actually is like really defeating on what, on what you're doing. And the reason I bring it up is just because when we look at the people that are like panic buying with fuel and stuff like that, everybody's lives are completely different, isn't they? Do you know what I mean? And you never really, you can't group everybody together and call them a certain thing when they're acting on fear. Because we all have certain fears that are different all of the time. Yeah. Have I met, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's, it's, um, it's yeah, it's, it's similar to what I was saying, which is, you know, people uh, ha have, you know, more more than individualistic, even though it's presented as individualistic behavior, it's more than them as an individual yeah, sometimes. Yeah, and there's another layer to that, by the way, that, you know, kind of leans into some of the things that we talked about last week, which is that, our, you know, we can't start to use our life experiences necessarily as excuses for poor behavior all of the time, right? So poor behavior in the end is poor behavior, and we all have a certain amount of responsibility to make sure that, you know, we take our life experiences and try and behave in a way that is incumbent with a collective society. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that's the other thing as well, though. Collective collective um, behaviours drive actions. Yeah. Right? So yeah, 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 if, yeah. if that's why this happens, this is why, do you know the, uh, the, the toilet roll hoarding thing? It actually started in Australia. Oh, did it? Yeah. It started in Australia. And there, and that was starting because there was a fear about toilet paper being um, because they their biggest supply was um, was China for right. toilet paper for Australia. Right, right, right. So then the the fears and the fights and all that started in Australia, and that just caught fire across the world. Mm. Like there was it was basically an irrational thing that was going on because obviously they were looking to China and what China export and in uh, to to Australia. It started off there, and then it just. Just like yes, that's mad, what happens. Anyway, the, we've had a much longer... Co I started off by saying that's yes, a mate. boring topic yeah, and really I don't really start. want to spend too much time on it. So something that I really do think that is important for us to cover uh, on our on the podcast and particularly with the things that we talk about is um, Sabina Nessa. Okay. You know the name? I know the name. Should I let you tell me about the name? It was the school teacher, young school teacher that was murdered uh, walking through a park. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, to be candid, I, d I don't know the. I haven't been following the story. I haven't been following like the 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 hunt for the killer or anything like that. So they've got somebody now. Um, I think he's being he's in court very soon. The conversation that I wanted to originally have. Um, there's there's a story um, that I found online. One of the things that was quite clear about this story is that it wasn't really reported in the news at the beginning, right? Mm. Where did you first hear about it? Uh, on the news. You did see it on the news first before you saw it on like social media. You're not a heavy social media no, user. No, 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 I saw it on the news, yeah. You saw it on the news first. Well, it didn't make it to the news properly in the way that the Sev Sarah Everard story did. That's right? true. It didn't make it. Now, they were two slightly different things in that Sarah Everard, that they were kind of looking for the killer for a little bit longer than they were in this instance. But there's some statistics here that in the first week after Sarah Everard's death, there were twice as many posts on Facebook as there have been since Nessa died and 50% more interactions with those posts. While 225,000 people reacted to a post about Sarah Everard in the seven days immediately after her death, and only 148,000 have responded to the news of Nessa, Nessa's death. Similarly, a quick look at Google Trends shows that immediately after Sarah Everard's death, there was a huge spike in people searching for her name, where now, uh, I don't know how old this story is, probably a few days now, but uh, we were now a week after uh, Sabina Nessa's death, and there's been no equivalent trend. A lady called Gwen Eiffel talks about um, missing white woman syndrome. Mm. What do you think about that? I guess the first question is why do you, why do you think that why do you think that is? It's relatability, it's resonance, um, it's all the things you're pointing to. 
in your mm-hmm. statistics. Mm-hmm. It's racism. Yeah. It's it's unconscious bias for a lot of people. It's not conscious. It's not like oh I've seen. It's just unconscious in that it, it's not it's not triggering me in the same way as it as it uh, as it does when a white woman's been gone missing or been murdered. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's happening. And actually, I I I, I can't remember. I can't remember the um, the actual event that led up to me writing a post on this. But I remember, this is one of the reasons I'm not on Facebook anymore. And it's not Facebook. It's kind of, it's the behaviours of people on social media that I kind of really struggled with. But there was, there was, um, I th- there was, there was either a bombing in a mosque or there was an earthquake where uh, a, a lot of, a lot of Muslim people died. Mm-hmm. And there were like no posts um really comparatively speaking on social media um and then you know when the uh notre dame uh burned yeah honestly like the amount of profile photo changes and we're with you and you know it was just so powerful and I, i'm normally i just sit and i just like go, okay that just that's annoying me. but i i actually posted something about the irony of taking something that that is a building i appreciate there's history but when, you know, when just two days ago, so many people died, there was just, you know, mm, no mm. response. And of course, it triggered people, mm. you know, it tr- like uh, it, to say things like, I do so much in my community. And, you know, so it triggered people. But the truth is, people cared more or certainly vocalized that they cared more about a building going on fire, but no casualties versus hundreds of people dying. And I think it's because of relatability. People have been to Paris they you know they yeah. see it as a historic building they can relate to it mm. so I don't think they consciously think that that's more important than a human life but it's just it doesn't touch them in the same way yeah does that the relatability piece right does that fall into the category of unconscious bias I think it does yeah I know that's does that make sense as a question? Do you understand why I've sort of... Uh, like, I think it does. Yeah. Because... Uh, not for everyone, because they're, co- they're consciously not engaging, they're consciously not bothered, but a lot of people are unconsciously um, going about their day business, you yeah. know, day to day. They're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not bothered, they don't know they're not bothered, they're just, it's not registering. Yeah. So in that case, I do think it's unconscious. Do you think... And I'm asking purposely hard questions here. Do you think as somebody with brown skin, do you think you would subconsciously, because I want to know if it goes, if it's something that does happen both ways. Do you think you would subconsciously um, have it less resonant when it's Sarah Everard? Would it be less, less res- on a subconscious level? I don't think so. And I think the reason is because I live in a predominantly white Western country. Okay, so you, yeah, that would make sense, right? So, so if we were living in Bangladesh or India today, and the same thing happened to a white person, it could be the case um, that a similar thing would happen. Or maybe not a white person, because that would probably m- make peak news in India, all right? Yeah. Because, you know, Western yeah, yeah, dies yeah, yeah. and there would be global, probably global global media would jump on it. Yeah. But let's say if it's a Filipino person in who's, who's living in India mm. and Indian people, I think a similar thing would happen. I, I can't, I, you can't just, put, I think it's just majority rule kind of behavior. Yeah, yeah. So as... Is the work for me as a white person, right, to accept that that will happen to me subconsciously, that I will subconsciously be more resonant to the Sarah Everard than I would for the Sabine Nessa, right? Is, is the work for me that that's, that's going to happen subconsciously and I need to check myself and notice that, right? And then make sure that I treat the two the same, right? That, that, does that feel right to you? Why don't you ask yourself the question? Well, that's what that's what I'm saying. That I, I have asked myself the question. That kind of feels like I either say to me, no, I looked. At, I, I would look at them completely the same. I think there would be a hint of denial there, right? Because I think it's the, the first question that I asked you is to see if it's part of 
the hu a part of like a human functionality that I've grown up around, you know, predominantly way more white people. So I just, I'm more resonant with that, right? And then so the work becomes to alter that by consciously calling out my subconscious and making changes, yeah. right? So yeah. is that fair? Yeah. Does that feel fair to you? I think so. Uh, but it's, it's, it, do you know what? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a synergy to the earlier conversation around hoarding petrol. Mm -hmm. It does require work at an individual level. Yeah. But it requires work at an institutional and macro level, right? Yeah. The media doesn't report it in the same way. Therefore, you don't register it in the same way. So if you have to work harder to find the information or to, to be seen, to see two equally horrifying um, stories about um, uh, women being murdered. Mm -hmm. But if they're not presented to you at Equan, you have to work hard, then that's just gonna make, put barriers in your way. Exactly, and that was my next line of questioning, right? That was the next thing I was gonna ask you. So I can say to myself on a, on a singular level, as my personal responsibility, um, I can kind of notice my subconscious when it does happen, regardless of the obstacles that are put in my way with that, you know, and how it's presented to me, et cetera, et cetera. When I notice it, be open to calling myself out on it. So a bit like what we talked about last week, notice if somebody says to me, uh, you're looking at the two differently, rather than being triggered, you know, or when I am triggered, rather than going, stop making it about race to you. I go to myself, okay, why have they said that? Let me check myself, right? And then I make the changes. How consciously do you think this story has been reported in a different way? Is the media inherently uh, racist or, 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 or biased, or is it simply at a group level, the same things happening that I might have to admit to myself on a singular level? Does that make sense? How conscious is it? It's extremely conscious. Okay, why? Tell me, t tell me why you know that. Because I know it because I've done a lot of work in in tr or trying to understand institutional st structural oppression and yeah. behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you know, it doesn't happen by like a lack of change doesn't happen by accident. It happens by design. Mm. Yeah. We're coming to the end of 2021, and yet we're still talking about a, a racist media. We're talking about an imbalance in opportunities, an imbalance in poverty, an imbalance in um, representation. Mm. So it, it's, it's there by design, not by accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the media, you know, you've got right-wing media, you've got left-wing media, because it, it, it pays to have that point of view. Mm. It pays to cultivate a particular audience mm. and speak to them and make them super fans. Mm. It then attracts advertisers who want to advertise their brands to those people, and it just perpetuates. Yeah. So there's nothing you there's nothing that breaks it unless you have significant change. Look at what happened with George Floyd. You thought that that was a sea change moment, but really, mm. yeah, it's not really. No. Nothing's significantly changed. No. Some like high um, velocity uh, activity in the immediate aftermath, but you don't really see anyone really companies. I mean, talking about it, there's some incredible people that have really championed and continued the work. Mm. Allies who weren't doing it that have continued, mm. but that's a dwindling number. Because every, yeah. like everything, again, like you know, this this petrol. Crisis, crisis in yeah. inverted commas, it will subside. Normality will resume. You get like these heightened moments and then everything just goes back to normal. Yeah. But that happens in a, both a negative and a positive sense. So, like, everyone's get the reason I've like gone off, screw it, I can't be bothered to go to a petrol station because I know in about a week's time I'll be able to get onto a forecourt and get some, um, yeah, 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 some fuel yeah. for the car. Yeah. And the same thing happens with these moments like. Black Lives Matter, um, the, the kind of the work that they have done, um, the people that, you know, that, that um, 
weren't in uproar after George Floyd was killed. That was a peak moment. But then most of the people have just gone back to their daily lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which in and of itself is the priv- is part of the privilege. It's privilege, but... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Touching on one of the things that you said and sort of shifting the conversation slightly because I think, look, I don't know how far we go into that in calling out the media for being as racist as they are, right? And we could start having conversations about how they change it, but I, I, I don't know how far we could go with that. But we talk about these moments, right? Picking up what you're saying about these moments and how they, things don't change. If we park the, the racial side of it for a moment and start to look at the male violence towards women side of it, right? Yeah. Here we are with this having happened to Sabina Nessa and essentially it's exactly the same thing. It doesn't look like it was a police officer, by the way, that did it, but we're in the same place, right? The same violence against women with no real changes have happened since it happened with Sarah Everard, right? As we sit here as men, what I will say actually, and I'll read this, let me first ask you about this, 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 this piece actually. Straight after Sabina Nessa's uh, death, police in the area were handing out personal alarms and leaflets on personal responsibility. After Sarah Everard's death, women were told not to go out after dark. What, well, let me just ask you straight. What do you think about that? Um, I think it's obvious and reactionary, like because the police have to show they're doing something. Mm-hmm. But it's appalling. It's 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 blaming the women for for being attacked. Yeah. Do you think they shouldn't have done it then? Like, and, and again, by the way, I'm pushing you into uh, difficult territory on purpose because. Does it become, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, so this is no, you know, I'm not pushing any opinion one way or the other with these questions. I'm trying to do what we do here. Um, is it not similar to the analogy that you said earlier? Well, this is where we find ourselves. And so it, at the beginning of it, it is, we need, we haven't created change. And so we find ourselves where it is dangerous. And so we need to put a plaster on it. I, I think there's different levels of it. So if you're, if you're, um, if you're, um, handing out uh, 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 alarms or yeah. uh, advice—that's yeah, yeah. one thing. I think that's the right thing to do in the moment because there's in the moment because there's, there, there, there will be women and families of women who are worried. Okay? Yeah, but but telling women to modify their behaviour—no, that's bullshit. Yeah, but taking out a personal alarm is modifying your behaviour, isn't it? Uh, I don't think I don't I think that assuages people's fears if they're going out potentially. Yeah. yeah. But what I mean by what, sorry, what I mean by telling people to modify their behaviour is telling them not to go out by themselves alone at night or uh, not to cut through uh, uh, parks. Um, I already feel conflicted because actually that. Well, because I could speak- easily ask you if it happened in your area, what would you tell your daughter? If yeah, you yeah, could, yeah, exactly. You know, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. I, like, there's a little bit of me that I get why this is wrong, and we shouldn't be telling women to alter and change their behaviour. I do always feel a little bit, and I'm going to go on to give the police a bit of stick for something else in a minute. Um, but I do always feel a little bit sorry for them because I don't think it's as black and white as. You know, because you, you could go around and say men modify your behavior, but if, if somebody's gonna go out killing somebody, it, they're not gonna stop if the police knock on their door and say, we're telling all men to not yeah, go out killing. Yeah, but again, again, I mean? this, 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 isn't, this cannot be looked at as an isolated. You've got, you've got to do things that are remedial in the moment yeah. uh, or, or, or um, deal with the situation as they, as they happen, of course. And it's not even about the police. The police take their instruction from somewhere, yeah, know, yeah, at, yeah. at a policy level, yeah, yeah. Of course, there's kind of, st- you know, it's in, an, it's a, it's a inherently racist institution within itself. So there's a lot. Of, I'm not, I'm not, um, giving them a pass on this, right? But this is again, it's driven by policy, local, national, international policy, right? Um, you know, the way that they treat uh, offenders, the way that they release. Uh, repeating offenders, the the education, the way that um, we treat, you know, um, it, you know, 
you know, children through the system mm. and how they become as, you know, adults. It's yeah, all yeah. driven by the way that the government invests or chooses not to invest in certain areas. Yeah, yeah. The kind of way that they do policing or drive policy. I mean, when you've had Pretty Patel, you know, in charge of this stuff for so long, it has a knock-on effect. But it's not just her. It's, you know, it's everyone that sort of sat in that role. Yeah. And I, and I, and I won't excuse Labour Party because they sat across the country for over a decade. So... You know, this isn't just about Tory party rule. Like they've definitely, you know, driven it, but it is yeah, yeah. it is an endemic historic thing. It does it didn't just start with as much as I know you'd love to believe it, it didn't just start with the Tory party when they took to you know they took Oh no mate, I, listen, I I I'm I will slate Labour nowadays, mate, just as much as I do Tories. I'm pretty much politically homeless now, has. Yeah, we're gonna why don't we just start a party ourselves? What the hundred and fifteen miles yeah, party? Yeah. <laughs> what what can we do? Like, I th I think we're kind of almost running out of time in terms to talk about this because there is something else I want to talk about quickly. But how do we how do we create? Where do we even start? What can we do on a personal level as me as men? We we had this same conversation, right? Uh, after the Sarah Everard things, I I don't know if you remember. I I sort of remember. As saying where you call things out, and then I was like, "Well, what?" So if you saw a load of blokes yeah, whistling yeah. at a woman, yeah. and, then, yeah. and then we got to the point of you're not gonna like, yeah. you, you you might not do it because you might get yourself, yeah, you know. So I don't know. Is there any like, what do you think? Is there well, any? Well, something that's definitely been going through my head as we've been talking is, uh, you know, the fact that I haven't really invested myself in the story and understanding and following the situation and, and championing it, uh, championing change means I'm not using my privilege. Like I'm a bloke, therefore it's not mm. really, you know, like I, it's not, it should be pulling my attention. Not only because I have two daughters mm. and a wonderful partner and I got, you know, a mum and a sister and, you know, we've all got women in our lives at a very personal level in my world, but just in general, the work that we do, I have to call myself out. Like, if I'm gonna talk about this, yeah, I have to be engaged. Yeah. So that's the first thing we can do is just not breeze over it and, and claim busyness or, you know, or claim like, I, you know, I've got, you know, other stuff. I'm, you know, like I've spent enough time um, working on stuff to understand that actually I need to do some work. I, and I'm not being hard on myself, I do believe yeah, but what? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, but what? I didn't really engage with the Sarah Everard story, and I think there's a little bit of me that doesn't like to engage with bad news, right? If, I, yeah. if I'm really honest, I try and keep going in the world, and I did that. It was a very, very real strategy of mine at the beginning of lockdown was just stay away from the bad news and keep focusing forward. But that is that is dangerous. When you're doing the work that we need to do, you ha you have mm. to you have to run into it. You have to run into it. So actually, just I was just as we were talking, I'm going, I going. I've probably been. Not at a race level, obviously, but at a male privilege level, it hasn't hit me in the way it should. Mm. So I'm calling myself out. So that's the f that's what I would say. Yeah, and I guess there's a bit, of, perhaps a bit of internal work there, in terms of what you could do. I just, I don't know. I think it's easy to say we can call ourselves out and we should have been talking about it more. But I, I, I don't, we're talking about it on a podcast. I think a lot of it is is, is about. Again, self work. I think there's a lot to be said about doing the shadow work, right? And understanding all of our parts of ourselves and how we show up and the alterations and the changes that we can make on ourselves. Because that's one thing that we do have total control over, right? Um, and we can make them kind of changes on ourselves. I just think it's probably a little bit more um, complex, muddy nuanced I, 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 I'm just saying I think the f rather than beating yourself up is it's creating awareness we do, the, you know the work that yeah. we do in coaching is is, re is is bringing insight and awareness yeah is that what you do coaching is it that's what I do mate you should know <laughs> sitting here in these plush surroundings because of me um, no just kidding um, but no that's it you, you like 
Like that's the thing that we need to do is to we we do it ourselves first. You start from within, change yourself to change the world, change mm. yourself to change to help change others, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So all I'm doing is is acknowledging that I have some privilege here and, and being aware of it and doing something. But beyond that, it is um, it is about using platforms. It is about using our work. It is about um, finding those moments to jump into the conversation, even if it feels like you might get. Um, attacked and there is a different version to that physical and you asked me last time would i intervene and what would i think about and would i worry about getting physically beaten up there's a there's a there's a digital version of that yeah isn't there and we've talked about it a lot yeah like, yeah, yeah and we should we should jump in because actually it's much I'd, i could easily much easily take a, a a digital beating up than a than a physical beating up but so i think sometimes when you see that stuff online or on a whatsapp group because that's where it often might show up yeah the whatsapp group's in. a big one i you think yeah into it i think that the, the whatsapp group's probably bigger than your 112 followers on instagram 127 <laughs> right look i want to talk about this quickly because actually this was a topic i really want to discuss about uh, i wanted to go a little bit deeper than we than we perhaps might now um let me ask you a question, Hass. We have got, I'm, I say, I think we've got 10 minutes here. We can go a little bit over. I'm happy we're in the studio. Life's good. If something happened to you, right, and your wife, um, God forbid, what would happen to your kids? Where would they go? Who would have them? Um, I don't know that. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a very personal question question okay not, would they have somewhere to go yes they would they would let me muddy that question even more on a day-to-day -day basis if you can't be emotionally available for your kids right which is uh very realistic and would often happen yeah right uh and in a similar way your wife couldn't be emotionally available for them perhaps for a particular emotion right um couldn't show up as the kind of loving, supporting adult that they need to, for whatever reason, stress at work, stress in your relationship, right? Yeah. Of course, I'm not suggesting that there is, but 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 if that was to happen, on a day-to-day -day basis, are there any other adults in, that your kids' children interact with um, to get those emotional needs met? On a day-to-day, -day on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. Daily? Yeah. No. No. And I think the reality, of that is true for most families in the world in which we live in today. Yeah. Right. The reason why I've come, like I've brought this conversation now, um, I do have like extended family. I have my mum, I have my wife's mum and dad who are, we're very close with that my children get to interact with a lot. I don't think that's true for a lot of people, mm. a very large proportion of people. I pulled up outside my daughter's school. She goes to the same school that I used to go to when I was a kid. And uh, she pointed to this building out the front of the school. Uh, and she said to me, that's the annex. That's where we go when we've been naughty. So if they've been naughty, they send them to sit in this room, that this building. And I said, oh, that used to be the youth club. And do you know what my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter said to me? What's a youth club? Hmm. She didn't even know what a youth club was, right? And we've talked, I've talked a lot about this on our podcast. And uh, um, if you can't be emotionally available for your children, which happens a lot, to all of us for a million and one different reasons, teachers are not gonna be there for them emotionally because they're not taught to. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say, my daughter's got in a little bit of bother uh, at school and I've had to go up there. And when we went in to sit down to try and sort out why my daughter, who's known as being very good and nice girl at school, uh, why her behavior was the way that it was, the year head's first lines that she came out with was, I'm not gonna have you dragging my year group down. I went the whole year last year without excluding anybody from my year group and I'm not about to have you spoil it for me this year. And I thought, wow, like this year had knows that my daughter's had a lot of different stuff going on and that's her line of inquiry, mm. right? Now I don't even blame her. What did you say? What did I say? I, uh, it's, I don't want to start telling my daughter's story too much, right, right. but I and, said... But did you intervene with the teacher? I said, the form of language that you're using, yeah. if you know anything about my daughter, which you do, yeah. I'm not surprised that she gives you the reaction that you're telling me that she sometimes gives you. Because I said to her, think about my daughter and everything that she's gone through. And this whole, I'm, I don't want you, I'm not having you as part of my year group. I was like, 
my daughter is going to shut down there, right? When you do that. She's driven this year ahead, right? By funding pots and funding streams and the best schools get more funding and the best schools are nothing to do with emotionally capable and emotionally expansive schools is to do with the grades. Let, let me just jump in yeah. as well. It's kind of to, 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 again, I think if, if there was a theme, it's around the fact that policy drives behavior. Yeah. It doesn't reward teachers to be like um, the, the, you know, the teacher that you saw on like Educating Yorkshire, where you really care about an individual so much that you help uh, yeah. someone who stutters to actually, I, I was amazed that this, this Musharraf, he's now a keynote speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't reward teachers to do that. So actually, why break out of the mold? And if they don't hit the numbers, then, then they start to get performance managed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you then you get hardened and you sort of behave that way. I'm not giving that teacher an out, uh, but what I'm saying no, is- No, but it, and it is an out. It is policy. It's all yeah, yeah, policy yeah, level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think, like, I think compassion and empathy is always required. Mm. Like, so for, for doctors, you know, often they just go, they give you facts, right? Yeah. But facts can kill. Yeah. If you're about to tell somebody that got, uh, you know, four weeks to live, you've got to do that with compassion and empathy. I don't care if that takes an extra one minute. Yeah. But the way that they are driven is by numbers that they just, they've almost become very functional and they lose compassion and empathy. Mm. It sounds like that happened with the teacher. Yeah, yeah. And that is what happens. Yeah. Right. And actually, let me give you these statistics that I wanted to spend you. Spending on youth services in England and Wales has been cut by 70% in real terms in less than a decade with the loss of one billion of investment resulting in zero funding in some areas, according to research. Analysis by the YMCA youth charity found that local authority expenditure on youth services dropped from 1.4 billion in 2010 to 11 to just under 429 million in 2018-19, resulting in the loss of 750 youth centers and more than 4,500 youth workers. Youth workers and that are going because they don't create stats. That's why youth centers are going. And actually, when you, if you look at the whole, everything else that we've just talked about, angry young men are created by upset little boys who don't have anybody to go to. And when the, if we want, we've just come out of an 18 month pandemic, right? Or, or we're coming out of it, whatever. And, what you hear, one of the education secretary he might have just got a sack. I don't know. They've had a reshuffle or whatever they've done. He's talking about introducing Latin. Like, what's that going to do for our children? Can nobody see that angry adults fighting each other at petrol stations has so much to do with this? For me, the correlation is clear. I'll bet you I'd love to see a line drawn of that expenditure yeah, going down in the way that it does. And it would make a perfect cross if you put probably suicide rates against it and you put crime. Yeah. So I haven't got the data to back that up. No, 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 no. But you can, you know, you can realistically make the correlation between uh, the impact of taking away the investment in, say, youth centres and teaching and, and, and kind yeah. of individualistic support for... Um, higher needs children, right? Yeah, yeah. Whatever that might be, and and kind of all the other things. But you know the 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 the, the ministers and the departments and the civil servants that take this away because they look at it as a as a number on a on a spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, they do it. They do it because they again. There's no relatability. There's no resonance. They they do not care about the impact of taking something away where there are so many rungs away from the privilege that they grew up with and the privilege that they currently live. Yeah. But the, another way to look at it, they all enjoy elite sport. Mm -hmm. But elite sport, you don't get like footballers like Messi and Ronaldo, like just suddenly acquiring those skills at yeah. 35 years old. That has come through a product of a youth system where they're nurtured from you know, kicking a ball for the first time and they're growing through supportive environments, some discipline, some structure, some, and then moving them up as they grow and they develop and they're stretched into a place where they become elite footballers or elite tennis players or elite whatever. Yeah. So you've got to look at not at um, 
them as a prevention to crime, but as a possibility of a human being amazing. Yeah. And that's never going to happen. You know, like that's never going to happen unless there's a there's a there's a change. Um, but, you know, the work that we do with um, uh, Power the Fight and Ben and the team there, um, th they fully recognize as an organization the impact of the, the cuts to youth, um, uh, the youth system and uh, its correlation to violent crime yeah. and its correlation to the lack of opportunity, yeah. its correlation to being kept in a particular world. And so organizations like Power the Fight and I'm definitely name dropping here, yeah, are doing the work, not only at the community level, which is incredible to help people see that actually there is opportunities supporting the families who have been affected by violence, but also at the policy level. Yeah. So Ben advises Sadiq Khan, uh, the Violence Reduction Unit. He's, he's, he's working with big corporate organizations to drive change at a systemic level, because it won't happen if mm. we just leave it to government. No, yeah, yeah. And it's needed. Power the fight. Power the fight, yeah. Check like, out. massive shout out to them, massive shout out. And uh, uh, we need it now more than ever, by the way, because of the lack of community that we now live in. If you think how we, I think how we're supposed to live, right, as humans, once upon a time, we lived way more tribal. There was a massive community, you know, my mum and dad would have gone out hunting to get the food and I would have stayed at camp with the elders, the wise older people, right? And all that kind of stuff. That's kind of being obliterated and it's going, right? And by the way, I think you can put a lot of blame of that on the media as well. When you look at stories over the years of stranger danger used to be something that we taught in schools, you know, the, the media teaches you that the world out there is this big, scary world. And so we're going more and more insular all of the time, even more so now after the last 18 months. And like that kind of fear driven life that we live, if you're too tapped into the media, I think has, has, has compounded that even more. And so it's needed now more than ever to be able to look after the children. And I've said this a million times on the podcast, probably an exaggeration, but um, any demographic, demographic of people should be judged on how they treat their children. And I think we are a disgrace as our country. I think we are an absolute disgrace um, and change is needed. So it's good, you know, it's good to be able to hear the work that people like like Ben are doing with, with, with that because I think it's just so important. Has we are somewhere very near out of time, possibly one of the longest podcasts we've ever done. Lovely setting, that's perhaps why. Eye to eye contact. Eye to eye contact was very awkward at the beginning, but yeah. seems much more uh, flowed into it, fluent and fluid. Now, uh, reasons to be cheerful. Yeah, have, you haven't got one, have you? I do actually. I'll oh, go on then. You yeah. go first because I haven't. No, I have got one. Yeah. Um, my reason to be cheerful, I've got to try and tell this one really quickly because we're sort of running out of time, but I, I would say not being right is my reason to be cheerful. Cool, you must be really yeah. cheerful. Yeah, then. yeah, that's all the time. <laughs> all the I'm time. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but just um, like uh, in the last, um, last few weeks, um, I've really, really connected with my eldest, uh, just um, uh, with my eldest daughter, who's just started secondary school, so just kind of going through a lot of, uh, emotional change and uh, and it was just a moment where um, I got sort of a bit a bit checked about my behavior because what happens is that when I finished work I don't leave the office and have the, tr the transition and the commute time I just go downstairs mm. and then I'd go, I immediately go into kind of um, dinner cooking mode so I go from busy focus to another form of busy focus and by the time I sort of get to dinner but I'm wasted and I'm not very pleasant sometimes mm -hmm. And I got checked a little bit on it. And instead of what I might normally do was say, oh, I'm so tired, don't you see how busy I'm working? I made myself not, I didn't try and be right myself, yeah. but I actually tried to understand the impact. Yeah. And I sort of understand what I was carrying into uh, the family space. And I just checked it and I've, I've been different since. Yeah. And my relationship, particularly with my eldest, has just been more fun, we've been goofing about. We've been like talking about music and all that sort of stuff. And it's just, yeah, that's it. And I, so I guess my instant reaction normally is to kind of make other people wrong and make myself right. Yeah. But in this moment, I chose not to make In this right. moment, you took the feeling triggered and you used it as a way to look in. You hang around with a lot of good people, teach I you a do, lot man. of good things. Yeah, <laughs> I did. 
It was a framework I, uh, I was referring to. <laughs> uh, my reasons to be cheerful is not about me this week. And I, I meant to dig the article out. And um, for transparency, I've completely forgot to do it. And I'm not going to about to try and look for it. There was a um, disabled child that was uh, plays for a disabled football team in goal, and he posted a video of him saving a penalty. Are right. you smiling because you know the story? No, I don't know, no. Um, and he posted a video online uh, of him saving a penalty, and he got a lot of trolling, a lot of abuse for it. Um, and Fulham picked this up. I don't know if he played for the Fulham disabled team or not, but, but Fulham picked this up and uh, made him an honorary goalkeeper for Fulham's team. So they changed the goalkeeper on their website to this young lad and his name. Uh, and they made him an honor honorary member of the club and sat him right at the front for the next home game. And when Fulham scored, they all ran over after the goal and celebrated with this young lad. Oh, wow. And I saw the article online and I just thought, footballers get a lot of bad press and a lot of stick. Uh, I think people are kind of waking up actually, particularly because of the England boys. Mm. Uh, to, to, to some of the good that they do. But I just thought it was incredible. Yeah. Uh, and a really heartwarming story um, to end a really heartwarming podcast. Oh, mate. <laughs> it wasn't heartwarming at all. No, Never no. heartwarming, is it, our podcast? No, it, was, it, was, it was very enjoyable. Uh, Hass, this has been brilliant. We're going to be in this setting a lot more, I feel. Yeah. Um, and uh, very much looking forward to it. Anything to add before I cut you off? No? Okay, good. I'm looking... Well, actually, there is one final reason to be cheerful, which is Josh is uh, buying me lunch in a moment uh, because he lost... He lost... Oh, I should have cut you off. Thanks, Has. This has been very good. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for listening to 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kyle.